Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Langston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. We can't grow this podcast without you, the listener, or the support of our amazing sponsors. This year, we are pleased to announce the support of Matrix Fitness, one of the largest commercial fitness brands in the world and one of the fastest growing in the industry. Matrix Fitness produces training tools that focus on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike. With equipment that focuses on building speed, power, and explosive performance in the most efficient manner, Matrix has partnered with some of the top sporting organizations in the world. As a global brand with local support, the Matrix performance team assists their customers with solutions, research, and training protocols so coaches can focus on what they do best, help athletes prepare for competition, and getting better. For more information, please request their sports performance package from their Canadian Director of Education, Annie.Vilnive at matrixfitness.com and mention the Leave Your Mark podcast to qualify for your 20% discount. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Matt Price. Matt is currently the lead strength conditioning coach for the Los Angeles Kings. Before taking on this role, he had been the lead strength conditioning coach for Alpine Canada's men's speed team, as well as previously holding the same position for women's national team. He's been a game changer in the world of performance monitoring and the use of data to support training programming and on-ice loading. He brings a wealth of knowledge and passion for the game that he played competitively to high levels, including time spent as an Acadia Axeman. He is also going to be a new father very soon. Welcome, Matt. Great. Thanks for having me, Scott. Thank you for coming on, bud. Um, You know, it's fun to sit down and talk to the guys uh, that I respect in the industry and in the world of human performance and get a chance to find out really who they are. Cause you know, a lot of times you're at a conference and you get like five minutes to go, Hey, what's going on and da, 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 and you really don't get the background. So um, would you tell me sort of where you grew up and, and sort of why hockey became a draw to you when you were, when you were a kid? Yeah, well, I grew up, um, you know, just, just a, a suburb of Toronto in, in uh, Holland Landing, north of Toronto. Um, and uh, I, I guess like the rest of uh, Canada and young boys in Canada, you, you play hockey and you grow up being or grow up dreaming of being a, an NHL player one day. And that's that was no different for me, kind of obsessed with the idea of one day being a hockey player. And, you know, and I, it would be out in the, you know, rinks practicing and out in the in the garage all summer shooting hockey pucks and, and uh, just, just sort of consumed with the idea of practicing and trying to be better and um, grew up idolizing Wayne Gretzky and that sort of generation of players. And um, I, I remember reading Wayne Gretzky's autobiography when it came out and I, you know, was 
10 or 12 or 13 years old at the time. And just, I remember just highlighting or underlining the sections of where he, he would talk about his practice habits and little things he would do, learning how to count backwards from 60 to, to zero in perfect rhythm to, to understand the timing of a clock. And I think those little tidbits were really fascinating about practice habits and, and just little neat things that athletes did to be better than everybody else. And um, so, yeah, I grew up being a hockey player and uh, ended up playing at a fairly high level and, and kind of got a little bit of a sniff or a, a cup of coffee, as they say, and, and <laughs> attended a, a, a Toronto Maple Leafs rookie camp back in 98 and, and had a really cool experience as a player there. And, um, you know, things kind of uh, didn't pan out as a pro, but uh, I was fortunate enough to end up in Canadian University and, and played hockey at a collegiate level for another four years and, and a little little bit of minor pro hockey. But um, that sort of uh, experience as an athlete and, and this obsession with the game kind of obviously led me into my next career. And, and uh, there were a lot of uh, things along the path there that really have influenced me today. Were your um, parents big sport pushers or pullers, or did they just kind of watch you develop your... Our sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com, is back this year with a big lineup of courses across the country and beyond. The practice of reconditioning is literally changing the way we see physical preparation. This is an approach that brings the worlds of therapy and performance together that helps you as a practitioner build more robust clients. Not just rehab injuries or train for fitness and performance, but make people more robust. Life isn't about surviving longer, it's about thriving. And Reconditioning HQ is offering a life mentorship program called Empower You, totally designed to help human performance professionals live their best life. After all we do for others, shouldn't we do our best work for ourselves? If you have an interest in ice hockey, ReconditioningHQ.com, Perform Better, and Matrix Fitness are bringing the best in hockey performance to Mont-Tremblant, Quebec, June 27th to 28th, and it's going to be epic. Check out all of their course offerings on ReconditioningHQ.com. Yeah, you know, they, they didn't really push. Obviously, they were ultra supportive. Um, I, I'm assuming my dad really wanted me to play hockey. There was, <laughs> it, but it, it never came across as, as pushy. Uh, he coached at a lot of the levels. Um, you know, it was, just, it was just very supportive, and they were, they were always making sacrifices to make sure we had the opportunities to, to attend tournaments and have – you know, a new stick or something that, that was needed along the way. And, um, but yeah, it was, it was never pushy. We were multi-sport athletes. Uh, my, my brother and sister weren't huge into sports, but I got to play baseball, a lot of softball. And, you know, I dabbled in other things. It was, it was around the time summer hockey was becoming really popular. So I might've been one of those first generations to become a little bit too specialized right around that peewee Bantam age. But um, I can't say that it was a major detractor from overall athletic development, but no, very supportive parents and, and definitely not very pushy. Hockey in Canada is kind of like, it's not that it's not supportive of the academic world, but it's, it, it t- t- kind of makes the academic pathway a little bit more difficult. So when you were, you know, in high school and I'm, I'm assuming, where did you play your junior hockey? Yeah, I played major junior in Kingston. Okay. So you, you know, 
you go to a, a, a place like Kingston where there's a big university, Queens and all that sort of stuff. Where, what's your, where's your head when it comes to academics as you're going to play junior? Are you even thinking about that? Or are you basically focused on, I want to be a hockey player? Well, it's, it's an interesting, about? yeah, sorry. It's an in, interesting question because I, I was actually a first round OHL pick in the 95 OHL draft. And at that mm-hmm. time, it was almost a, a one-to-one. Like you get picked first round here you're going to the first round the next year in the NHL draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, that didn't happen for me. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so, um, but at the time, you know, I was a pretty good student. I, I enjoyed school and I, I loved learning, you know, I'm a very curious guy. And, but yeah, school went to the back burner and it was hockey, hockey, hockey and living the junior lifestyle. And, you know, it was cool to skip classes and sleep in and do all these sorts of things. And, and as I went through my three, four years and I saw some of my friends start to go off and, and the opportunities they were getting, and I could kind of see where my path was headed, I realized that things might have to, uh, you know, change in terms of where my trajectory was and where my focus was. And um, I got towards the end of junior hockey and, and I, again, I had a nice scholarship package to, to take advantage of. And you're, you're faced with a bit of a decision. Is it chase the dream and go and play minor pro hockey and, and hope things pan out or do you take this, this sort of nest egg and, and invest it in yourself? And I had some great opportunities and I was really interested in Eastern Canada. I had met some really cool guys in junior hockey that were Eastern Canadians. I thought they were the funniest guys, the, the, the best <laughs> characters, right? The newfies and the, the guys from Cape Breton and Nova Scotia. And it turns out I was heavily recruited to go to these uh, Eastern Canadian universities. There was the the St. FX's and the St. Mary's and the, the St. Thomas and the UNB's. And, and I went and visited Acadia university and absolutely fell in love with the place. And, and I decided that's where I had to go. And that's, that was going to be my next step. And, and I showed up there and I think it was the fall of 1999. I, I, I didn't know a thing about university other than I was, I was back in school and this was going to be my focus. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you choose uh, the major you went into? You just kind of honestly went down and stuck your finger on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. Like it's, it's, it it's, it was so, um, I don't know, just things kept falling in place for me. So the first year you get there and it's just this great little school and there's these amazing people there to help you. And, you know, they kind of hold your hand and say, okay, Matt, you should take one of these classes and one of these classes and we get it. You're a hockey player. And, you know, <laughs> this whole kind of handle yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they kind of ease you into a few uh, of these classes and you're kind of getting your feet wet again and hadn't been in school for a year or so. And so, you know, dabbled in, you know, whatever the, the general arts classes they give you, but I kind of got, turned on to uh it might have been an anatomy and physiology or something at the time and i didn't even know what kinesiology was and we had a small kinesiology school and i think i picked up one class and the second year or it might have been the end of my first year a new professor came in on a job interview and his name was dr jonathan fowles mm-hmm. and i don't know if you've met uh dr oh, fowles right so you know jonathan well right so he comes in as a as a a recent graduate out of his postdoc and he does a lecture and he's he's talking about training football players and plyometric training and power equations and i'm sitting there like freaking out i'm like this is the coolest thing ever how do i do more of this stuff and so i i you know i switched in my second year and, and was into kinesiology and i just 
I just took to it like a, you know, like a fish to water and just couldn't get enough of these classes, the, the, the physiologies and the biomechanics and the training theories. And, um, you know, it was kind of internet was, was there, but it wasn't like it is now. And, you know, we still had to go to the library and look up physical articles, but it was just a small group. And, and we had, we had Dr. Fowles and we had a couple other really great professors, a small group. It made it really fun. And, and, uh, that's how I got into kinesiology. And as an athlete, I loved training. I loved, again, going back to my, my youth about these ideas of how to get better and tricks to get better. And I applied it as an athlete, you know, I was always into training and how can I get a little bit better at this or that or the other thing. And it all kind of came together with this fascination of, wow, there's, there's an actual degree here (laughs) that I could learn more about the thing I'm really into. And, uh, yeah, I just had a great, you know, it was, it was, uh, four years there in, in that program and just great young professors. And, and it was just, uh, that was kind of the, the, the launching board of a, of a, mm. of a profession, I guess. Yeah. One of my, uh, I think I've talked to you about that. One of my best friends growing up, Eric Cedarberg is the guy who runs the athletics facility out there. So Sedzi, as you guys Sedzi, call it. Yeah. <laughs> I think Sedzi hired me once to work the, uh, the cage we called it where you could go and rent a basketball or something right <laughs> <laughs> kept you guys employed so you oh, could yeah. stay yeah, exactly did you guys did you guys win the nationals while you were out there well uh you know <laughs> proud program they won just pro- <laughs> they won prior to me getting there and i think they uh they made their way back not long after i left so <laughs> so you were the good luck charm yeah I like, <laughs> or not so much yeah, i like the joke but we had uh we had a really good group of players but we we had a very academic group um which which was really fun and and these guys like you know we had some really high-end business guys and guys that went on to med school and guys that were just kicking ass in uh these they had these uh academic all canadian awards on high gpas for varsity athletes and we had a really really smart group um we competed like hell but you know we, we didn't have the on ice success but it was a fun group of guys to to grow and learn and and that might have been another reason why you know we we excelled off the ice as a group too mm-hmm. yeah i it, the thing i've remarked in in the time that i've got to work with you and around you is you're very uh, curious and inquisitive and you're kind of you like to sort of dial down into stuff is, was that something that you kind of acquired at university and discovered in yourself or did you always sort of know that was who you were yeah I think I think that's just kind of who I am I mean my my dad's a really really smart guy um, mm. he was a cop and um, just a you know, he got into to being a cop because almost out of necessity, he had me at a young age and it was a good profession at the time and just a super smart guy. He never went to college or anything, always reading books, always very inquisitive. And he kind of, you know, you pick up on those things as a, as a, as a child and, and you're just curious, curious about nature and why is this and why is that? And we had, we had a, a, a full set of Funk and Wagnalls encyclopedias on the on the shelf right again pre-internet wikipedia didn't exist back then didn't exist no (laughs) took yeah so so he you know he'd teach you to to figure out which which volume to pull off the shelf and how to look it up and read the paragraph on snails or you know poison ivy Mm. so whatever it was and 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 that sort of you know curiosity was always there and um, just fascinating to me about how everything worked. I guess that's just who, who I am and how I'm wired. And 
like I said, when, when you start to see these come up, these things come alive, um, in textbooks, in research papers and people sort of talking about the profession again and, and then working with athletes, it just, it kind of made my brain explode. And, um, that's really never gone. I mean, it, it, it might be almost problematic now. It's just, it's, <laughs> it's so, it's so much a part of my day now and, and, uh, kind of get lost at the computer some days, just thinking about a small problem and, and obsessing over little things. And, um, you know how it is like just more and more questions than answers, but mm-hmm. yeah, that, that sort of gene is definitely, uh, that's deep inside. <laughs> so when, at, when you're at school, does the vocation of strength conditioning or, you know, the idea that you could be a professional in this start to actually, um, grow in you do you start to discover that this is what I want to do or yeah I think I think it was an idea I wasn't sure how it was going to manifest I didn't know where to go with it I mean you think back in the this would have been early 2000s but sort of that late 90s early 2000s in Canada Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of opportunities so you've got you know a handful of NHL teams that would have a, a guy in that role you know whether it's CFL teams there's there's really not much in terms of the professional side of things. And I'm just thinking in Canada, universities didn't really have anyone, maybe some of the bigger schools, but on, on, in Eastern Canada, those people didn't exist. So it's not like we had actual professionals around us going, Oh, Hey, that guy does it. Mm -hmm. These people kind of existed in, in space, you know, and like I said, the internet, we couldn't pop onto Twitter and go, you know, connect with so, so, and so, and so, and so, Mm -hmm. But I think the idea was there. <clears throat> I graduated. I got a, you know, you get your CSCS and you do a, the, at the time it was called PFLC. So the, the certified um, exercise physiology type stuff. And um, I moved back to Ontario with my, my parents and I got hired right away actually to work with a, a group. And this is actually where I met you is at the uh, Mind to Muscle in Barrie. Right. My first summer out of school and, and on the job and and uh, worked with uh, Rick Shaley's group there and got exposed right away to some professional hockey players and, and learned that my, my experience as a player was really great street cred. <laughs> so these guys, <laughs> you know how these guys are, right? It was, yeah. I don't care how long you've been doing it. You played, I, I trust you. So it was, it was like, <laughs> wow, I, I got some cloud here for some reason. And, uh, <clears throat> but it was really cool. And that was my, my first foray into it. And, again, still not sure if it was going to be a career. Like I just, I never thought long-term. I just knew what I wanted to do right now. And and that's all I really cared about. And I'm not going to lie. There was some hard times. I'll, I'll fast forward. I went and played a year of minor pro hockey and I, and I ended up back in Ottawa and I was living with a, an ex-girlfriend at the time. And I had no money. I, I, I figured out I made $6,000 as a pro hockey player. <laughs> And believe it or not, I came home with a, good a thousand. Life. Yeah. So I come home after this year, I actually saved a thousand of the six. Wow. So that was pretty impressive. And, you know, we're living in this little apartment and I'm trying to get a job. And like, you're, now I'm, I want to be a strength coach, but really you got to be a personal trainer. Hmm. There's lots of personal training jobs and I'm trying to make ends meet. And we're trying to scrape together some, some rent money. And I get a job as a personal trainer at a commercial gym, but it's, you know, it's, 
I didn't have a car. I had to take a bus. I remember taking a bus across Ottawa and it would take me two hours through all the different routes and stops and all these things. So I'd be on the bus at four in the morning to get there for six for a six thirty client. And, you know, and you don't know if you've got, you've got one client at six thirty. I might not have another one till 11. <laughs> no, you're, you're trying to piece together these, these customers. And so long story short is I would, I would take this bus two hours every day and piece together some clients and, and, you know, run these sessions on housewives or, computer engineers or whoever and you know it was just like i don't know if i can do this and i started questioning the whole thing and mm. and should i just try to get a traditional job should i should i try to go and maybe go back to school and be a teacher or he thought about everything else and and i'll remember uh jim mcleod was a professor at uh at acadia he was the athletic training professor there <laughs> yeah, i know jim well yeah so jim jim said a great thing to me that that kind of echoed back in my head at that time, which was, you know, do what you love, do it the best you can, and, and you'll get paid for it one day. And it was kind of one of those fork in the road moments where, you know what, I, I don't really want to do anything else. This is really what I, I think I love to do, and I'm going to figure it out somehow. Mm. And, you know, it's it wasn't next day, but it, I remember it not being far off that somehow this email showed up, and it was a response from Lauren Goldenberg's gym. And uh, Lauren's gym was not exactly on my bus route, <laughs> but not far <laughs> off. And uh, he said, hey, listen, if you, if you want to come in, uh, I could use some help, you know, sort of in the evenings. Because you had you reached know. out to him. Sort of exactly. Yeah. And, I, and I didn't have, a, I didn't have a, any reply for all these months or whatever. And so at this point now, I'm doing the bus thing and I get to the gym way on the other side of the city. And then I take another bus over to Goldie's gym at four in the afternoon to work another four or five hours there. And then I take that bus all the way back. And it's like, I'm on the bus for six hours a day and I'm working these two jobs and I'm going around, but it got to a point where, uh, Lauren's, uh, I think he, he saw enough in me and saw there was some value there and saw that I could really help his, his business. And he expanded my hours and, and I could step away from the, the personal training gym was able to lease a car so I could drive to and from work. And all of a sudden it started to feel like I could make this thing work. And I was working with real athletes and young athletes and males and females and, and all different types of, of, of athlete. Um, and that's where I think I was like, I think I can do this. This is, this is, this is really fun. And, and I got no question about what I'm doing here. So that was kind of the, you know, the impetus and the, and the point in time where it, it became a, a real vocation, like you said. That's awesome. I want to take a minute to connect you to our newest sponsor, Zenkai Sports, who are here with a question for you. Why do we sweat? Our body is perfectly designed to cool us down, but most apparel companies use moisture-wicking fabrics that remove our sweat, which makes us overheat faster and actually hurts our performance. Zenkai uses cutting-edge technology that repels sweat and other liquids. Zenkai Apparel lets the sweat stay on your skin, keeping you cool for longer and repelling odor-causing bacteria. This means Zenkai Apparel can be worn 10, 15, 20 times with no washing required. This lowers your carbon footprint and saves money, so you can be a hero with your planet and your family. Join the revolution for better apparel technology. What's in your ZNA? We've partnered with Zenkai, so if you head over to www.zenkaisports.com and use the discount code LYM20, you'll get 20% off your entire order. 
And uh, how does how did Lawrence your your connection with him play a role in sort of your your mentorship, uh, so to speak? You know, what did he represent in terms of your growth? Well, I think Lauren obviously is a is a extremely well respected guy in our field, not only in Canada but uh, you know in North America around the world. Um, he he just showed so many little details of how to be a professional, how to handle business, how to deal with uh, big time athletes, how to deal with youth athletes, how to coach his cueing. Um, you know, he had a lot of his own philosophies that, that still to this day, I think a lot of people um, rely on that. He's sort of the, 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 the founder of, or at least the person who's articulated them well. And I just, I just, really enjoyed my time watching him work. Mm. And again, it was more of that curiosity of me. He's like, man, how does he, how did he come up with this idea? How did he come up with that idea? And one of the things I really, um, you know, I'm thankful for about Lauren is he, he gave me a long leash mm. again. It was someone who didn't really have a long track record and, and pretty thin resume. He really let me and sort of turned me loose with with a lot of athletes and kind of let me discover things and, and make some mistakes here and there. But, um, you know, I was willing to work. I put in long hours. I remember I painted his gym for him and I was in there and I, he let me kind of take ownership over some things and, and put my stamp on some stuff. And that's... Uh, I know now as a leader and a, a bit of a, in a more of a directing role is it's really hard to delegate. It's hard to, for me, it's hard to, to turn over responsibility to someone because I, I just want to do everything myself. I have that, mm. you know, it's not a control thing, but it's, I want to have, I want to do everything. <laughs> and and uh, Lauren was really good at saying, Hey, yeah, go with this, try that by all means, take, take charge of this. And, and I think that was huge for my own growth. And, um, it let me know what I was good at it really showed me where I was weak mm. and I was there for two years. And that again, kind of brought me to another fork in the road, which is what's the next step for me? Am I going to work in, in someone's private gym for the rest of my life? Or is there another level? And, and that's kind of where the next, the next step came for me. What is the, is that when you go to Alpine or do you have a segue between that? At the most recent 2019 World Junior Hockey Championships in the Czech Republic, Team Canada's number one goalie was Nico Dawes. Nico is a great story. Heading into his NHL draft year, he was not on the Canadian team's radar. In the summer of 2019, Nico trained hard with the support of the great team at Shield Performance in Burlington, Ontario. He built up his body armor and lost 25 pounds. He came to the Guelph Storm camp and the best shape of his life and earned the number one spot for the defending OHL champs and then earned his spot with Team Canada on one of the hockey world's largest stages. One of the tools used by Nico was the Matrix Fitness S-Force Performance Trainer. The S-Force is a no-impact, weight-bearing training tool that can improve fast-twitch muscle fiber, increase explosive performance, and support many conditioning objectives. Matrix Fitness produces training tools that focus on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike. For more information, please request the Matrix Fitness Sports Performance Package from their Canadian Director of Education, Annie.Villeneuve, at matrixfitness.com. And mention the Leave Your Mark podcast to qualify for your 20% discount. Yeah, so 
<laughs> going back a little bit, when I was at Acadia, I, I did my my undergraduate thesis. We had a, a, a honors program where you do a thesis, and it was kind of like a little mini masters. And uh, under Doctor Fowles, we we uh, had a project called Skate Sim, and it was basically a, a super Russian plyo box that we had designed and the school trademarked it and the whole deal. But it was a cool project and it was a plyometric bounding device that, that skaters would use. And, um, you know, it, it was a kind of a cool project and then it ended up getting sold to, you know, the, the Toronto Maple Leafs had bought one of these things and the, I think the Washington Capitals bought one. And for a time it was a little bit of a business idea. Well, at some point the folks in Calgary, saw it or, or got their hands on it or something like this. And, uh, again, I ended up on a trip out to Calgary and I knew that, uh, this guy named Steve Norris and Matt Jordan were interested in it. Never met them before. So I get, I get sort of connected on a, an email or something with them and I go to the oval for the first time and I, and I meet Matt Jordan and me and Matt start chatting and I meet Steve Norris and they give me a tour of the facility and they're basically telling me how they want to use this skate sim device that I'm associated with. And long story short is I end up on this tour with these two guys and we're, we're talking and walking and, and my, again, I'm at one of these like head exploding type moments and I'm really having a great connection with these two guys. And you know why? Cause they're, they're such phenomenal people. I, it was like, I have to come here. I have to be here. <laughs> and I went home and I, and I, and I reached back out to Dr. Norris and I said, how do I, how do I get here? How do I come to school here and learn from you? And, and he told me about their master's program and, you know, I went back and, and applied and, and got accepted. And so then at that point I, I ended up um, leaving Lauren's gym to move to Calgary and pursue a master's degree, um, studied under uh, Steve Norris and Dave Smith spent a lot of time, obviously, you know, the group there with Matt Jordan, Scott Ma, uh, Dave Ellis at the time, Stu McMillan, um, studied with Ryan Van Aston, who's in, in Calgary now with the Flames. Um, just a really, really great group of people and just, you know, an incubation tank of, of just super smart dudes that if you could just hold your weight, um, you'd, you'd be doing okay. And, uh, that was the next step. And, and at the time, um, I hate to be long winded with this stuff, but I remember when Canada was awarded the 2010 Olympics and I, I don't remember when the announcement was, it was sometime 2001, 2002 ish. And I remember in my head saying, I, I want to work at those Olympics because mm -hmm. I was in kinesiology at the time. I said, I'm going to work at those Olympics. Fast forward five, six, seven years, and I'm finishing my master's degree in Calgary. Dave Ellis hires me for Alpine Canada three years out from the Vancouver Olympics. And that's where I took over at the women's program. Mm. So, yeah, that, that was the, the transition to Calgary. That's awesome. And you get there. You just talked about all these guys, and, you know, they are amongst Canada's uh, so-called elite of, of, of strength conditioning and human performance and are all doing really special things now, but you come into that environment. Is it intimidating? Is it uh, challenging for you or is it uh, inspiring or both? No, it's definitely both. Um, first off the, the program at the time, I think we had five people that were accepted into the program was, it was like Navy SEAL training, uh, Dr. Smith, Dr. Norris absolutely put you through the grind. 
And it's like, they're trying to make you quit. It was just torture <laughs> and long days. And, and you're just slugging. It wasn't one of these online programs you find now and you chip away at your own pace. This was, you know, thrown into the deep end. I mean, absolute attention to detail. One little thing wrong on a paper, it was ripped up and it was, it was so intense. Um, and that part just in the beginning really, I think, open your eyes up to what you're in for and, and what the expectation level was. And I think that's why the lab there, their physiology lab, um, and beside their biomechanics lab is, it is, and is, uh, was considered such a, a world-class lab. It's just the, the level of detail and attention to detail there. Um, you start to spend time as a student. I would, I would sneak down to the oval there and, and poke my head in the office and say hi to Matt and, and start to get to know Scott and these guys and Stu and just ask, is there anything I can help with? And I'm just hanging around. I'm not working right now, but can I, can I lend a hand? Can I test, test some athletes or get my hands on something for you? And they, they would throw some, some bones my way. And, um, I, I wasn't necessarily intimidated. Um, very, very inspired. I mean, you've been there. You just, you just walk around the place and you're, it's just oozing excellence and it's oozing awesomeness. And it's just, uh, again, it's just, it was, I I said, this is what I want to do. I want to be one of these guys. I want to be around these guys. I want to learn from these guys. And they were so gracious and willing to to teach and and share. So at no point was it standoffish. It was just Hey, if you can, if you can help us and and you can fit in with this group, we want you, we want you to be a part of it. Was there a part, one of the, one of the guys particularly influential uh, amongst that crew for you, like that you kind of felt a kinship with or felt that you, you, you wanted to sort of pursue in a sense, their, their pathway. Here again with another word from our sponsors, Zenkai Sports, who want to let you in on a little secret. Performance apparel hasn't changed much in the last 20 years. Most apparel is still based on moisture-wicking synthetics, which not only make you more overheat faster, but are toxic for your body and the environment. Synthetics don't biodegrade, so that stinky workout shirt you have to throw out after six months, it lasts for thousands of years in landfills. Zenkai is the only cotton-based training apparel on the market, keeping your body safe from those scary petroleum-based synthetics found in most workout gear and giving you that extra edge when it counts. Be a part of the solution and join the revolution for better apparel technology at www.zenkaisports.com. What's in your ZNA? For 20% off your entire order, please use the discount code LYM20. Yeah, I think <clears throat> there's no question Matt Jordan and I have, have really formed a strong friendship over the years. Um, you know, at, it was early on when he was one of the first guys I met, but just one of the, the most uh, humble, uh, genuine human beings you'll ever meet. Um, on top of that, maybe one of the smartest guys I know, if not the smartest. Um, and we've, we connected early. Uh, I, I would lean on him as a mentor, as a friend. Uh, you know, there was, there were, there were a lot of hard times, you know, you're going through different phases of life at that point. And, and he was at the time going through some, some, uh, some hard times in his own personal life. And just, you know, I think we were trying to, to forge careers and, and, uh, 
you know, what was the next step for him? He had had a really incredible run with, with speed skating and some of the, the sports he'd been involved with. And I was kind of breaking in with Alpine. And <clears throat> I think we had, we shared curiosities. We, we, we get super philosophical with, with things and, you know, just a lot of question asking and late nights, you know, just, just talking about, you know, different ideas. And, um, he's definitely the guy that, that inspired me the most. Um, and, and after the 2010 Olympics, as you know, funding sort of ebbs and flows and, and the sports that he was involved with was having a bit of a pullback and it looked like he might've become a bit of a free agent at the time. And, uh, and I said, Hey, listen, I'm scheduled to make a shift to the men's side with, with, uh, the ski team. What do you think about coming on board and, and taking over the women's program? You know, and we, we sort of talked internally with the, uh, the sport Institute there and, and it was a fit and, and that was that next phase where me and him got to work closely for the next Olympic cycle and, and kind of tag team on the ideas we had been formulating, uh, and some of the research he was just starting at the time. And, uh, we took over the two programs. So yeah, he was definitely the, the biggest influence on me. Uh, the walk up to those Olympic games, I'd love to play in that a little bit because you, you, you join into a sport that, uh, probably arguably before those Olympics next to hockey Canada was, was really getting a lot of money and there was a lot of talent on the team. I talked to Manny Osborne parody the other day about, you know, the talent that was on a team, Robbie Dixon, Eric Gay, him, you know, the list goes on. And there was a lot of expectation going into Vancouver. And then there's the, the women's team obviously had a few, uh, uh, you know, serious athletes as well going into the Olympics. So walk me into those Olympics from your perspective. There's a lot of money. You guys are really going after it. And, you know, it ends up not being kind of the experience that Canada wanted in, in, in Alpine skiing. Unfortunately, there was a few injuries and things. How did that all play out for you? Was it, what was the learning experience in that and the challenge around that for you? Excuse me. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, <clears throat> it's it's an experience that you simply can't replicate anywhere else. I think the magnitude of Olympic games and the planning that goes into it is, is undescribable. Um, if you make that a home Olympics, it's just on another level. And I got uh, thrown into the, the deep end again, like I've said before, three, three years out from a home Olympics here, here's a program. Here's a national program with metal expectations. I've never been on skis before. Here, take it over. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Better start reading some books. <laughs> um, <clears throat> what I learned was, again, the, and I think this comes back to guys like Dr. Norris and Dr. Dave Smith. And, and just, again, this, this, this training and attention to detail and you think about their high performance model and you think about the, the impact information on your athletes can have on performance and how you can handle athletes through different environments. So that, again, this, this sort of concept of collecting information and monitoring was, was what I was doing at the time, but applied to the bigger scale, how we were going to take this group of, of athletes, lead them through, uh, three, four years into a home games. Um, it's a treacherous sport. We don't want to, we don't want to start losing horses, so to speak to injury. So we got to get everyone to that point and they got to be ready to go. And 
just the the amazing integration of the the on snow staff the medical staff and that includes the physios and the and the doctors uh, and the training staff the strength staff the the sports psychs the nutritionists and <clears throat> this has been and always will be my model for high performance is how well that group of people comes together and communicates at a regular time interval. And it's, it was really, really impressive. Um, that went right from the high performance director down, who's kind of your general manager for those that, that don't understand the Olympic world as much, but sort of your GM to your coaches, to your, to your staff and to your athletes. And it was such a well-orchestrated plan um, with any and every resource like you said, money was pumped in. We were taking helicopters up to private glaciers and we were all over the place. It was insane. Um, really no excuses when it came to, uh, to resources. But really, we did a great job of, of preparing and planning. And that's something I'll take away from that experience. Mm, very cool. And you come out of those Olympic Games and... Um, I remember, you know, probably that was probably when you and I first really started to get to know each other a little bit more, bumping into each other on the road. I want, I'm, I'm interested before we go into the, you know, challenges of some of the stuff that you did when you, the first time you, you stood on a world cup ski hill and kind of recognized what these guys really did. Tell me about that. Was, was that kind of inspiring or. <laughs> did you go yeah. what the hell <laughs> yeah well i mean my first time on on snow they they we went down to chile right away and you know they kind of threw some skis and boots on me and and they threw me again they're just like here go figure it out and you know i got a bundle of gates on one shoulder and i'm lugging something else here and i'm trying to get up and down a mountain at 3500 meters altitude and you know sucking air and I, I don't know where I was going and they're going, yeah, up that lift and to the right and down. And it's just like totally overwhelming and kind of get your feet wet. But like you said, you get to a, you get to a, 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 one of the race Hills and even Lake Louise for that matter, like not considered one of the more treacherous courses, but I think <clears throat> to this day, that will be the sport outside of hockey that I have the most affinity to. I was around it for, for uh, nine years or eight years or whatever it was. And <clears throat> they are by far the, the, the most insane athletes. When I think about what they do and, <clears throat> you know, it, it's, it's really, really impressive. You know, Eric Gay, who you know, and obviously have worked with a long time, <clears throat> excuse me. Eric once showed me something. He was standing in his boots and he was standing there and he said, you want to know the difference between first and last? And I said, okay. And he, and he kind of just leaned forward about a quarter inch. <laughs> right. And I said, I, I don't get it. And he goes, watch where my shoulders go. And he just leaned forward a quarter inch and he goes right here, you're on the edge. And right here, you're in the back seat. And I was like, man, oh man, like to, to look at that hill and I would go down and you've been down them. I'm hanging on for dear life. Like, I just don't want to fall, take out a bunch of people, make a spectacle, end up on Austrian news somehow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> these guys are, are pushing and leaning forward and on their, on the front of their tips, like they say, and, and on the, on the toes of their boots and they're looking for speed and they're being aggressive. And I know they're not fearless mm. because it's, they, they have a, a healthy amount of fear and a respect for the mountain 
and they've seen what can happen if you're reckless, but they lean into it. And I will always respect those guys for what they do because it is, it is certifiably insane. (laughs) (laughs) When do you start to discover, maybe it's from the beginning, but I'm just curious because obviously to be a good strength coach, well, I'm, I'm curious what you think are sort of the ingredients of that, but to be really good, I think you have to, you you need to know your X's and, and O's, but you also need to have this relational capacity and to understand what the athlete's going through. And having been an athlete before, you obviously have have that benefit of knowing what it is like. But when do you start to discover that in yourself, the 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 sort of intangible of how you create relationships and create trust and all that sort of stuff? Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've thought about this a lot lately and I, and I've talked about it to people in the past, just I, at the time, again, where I kind of got my start and maybe it's because I was in a small town in, in Nova Scotia, but we didn't have a lot of, like, I didn't have like the real big time mentor. Like, it's not like I was at a, you know, I wasn't at USC football's weight room and I'm, and I was the intern or the GA and you had this mm-hmm. like clearly defined person and access to this, amazing facility. And, and I think we got the textbook education, but I still think at least at the time I was there coaching, the art of coaching was something that we didn't get taught and it wasn't really part of the curriculum. It was the physiology, the anatomy and the biomechanics and and some of the, the training theory. And then, Hey, go start working with athletes. And so how did I get a footing early? How did I get athletes to listen to me. And I, like I said earlier, I had this street cred. So they, Oh, you played, I'll listen. And it, and it kind of dawned on me early. Hey, these guys are listening for some reason. (laughs) And then they're actually taking what I say to heart. And I realized that, well, I didn't have a formal coaching uh, education, but I had a ton of experience with coaches and being an athlete. And I think just taking all of those experience over the years and trying to formulate my own coaching philosophy, my own coaching approach is, um, you know, kind of what, what evolved me and, and helped take what I thought was maybe a weakness and, and hopefully became a strength. And, mm-hmm. and now I actually believe it's more about that. Um, I'm all for the, the physiology and the biomechanics and the exercises and the creative movements, but connecting with athletes is is absolutely the underpinning of what I do now and and without it it's kind of useless so off the back of that I'm interested when you come to a sport like skiing where you don't have the street cred in some sense and you were talking about figuring it out on the hill how do you how do you transcend that how did you transcend that um I think if (laughs) someone else might have to speak to this because but I got introduced to this group of girls and, and, uh, they had, you know, I think they were just ripe for change. Um, they had, they'd had the, the same guys before for a while. There were a couple Austrian guys who were awesome, but it was just the right time for change. Um, we had some open-minded coaches. Rob Boyd was one of our speed coaches at the time. who was a, was a famous Canadian ski racer and it was just so open-minded, so supportive. And I kind of came in, um, very respectful of the sport, but I didn't pretend to know everything. I was very inquisitive. Again, I I wanted to learn. Um, I didn't have a lot of answers. I had a lot of questions. And I think 
with anybody. It's just getting to know the athletes, talk to them like people, just, just form genuine relationships. Um, you know, work together in a partnership to solve problems. Mm-hmm. And I, I never came in with all the answers. I wanted to learn about them. Um, we had very, very genuine relationships, uh, friendships. Uh, and I think that formed the basis of just a, a good coach athlete relationship where, Hey, we're in this together. Um, you know, you've got a lot of experience as an athlete. I've got a lot of experience as a, as a coach and how can we bring these two things together to, to solve a problem? And it, it seemed to work. Uh, I was, I was lucky too, that my first year with the, with the girls team, we went on and had a, a really incredible run. I think at one point we had podiumed in seven consecutive weeks. They hadn't podiumed in a few years and all of a sudden we were on this absolute tear. And, and again, that kind of gives you a, a little, a lot more street cred early on. It's like, Hey, this, this guy came in and all of a sudden we're winning. It's like, yeah, well, I wish it was all me, but, um, but it, it, you know, it adds to that and it just kind of gives you a little bit more gravity and, and we kind of snowballed from there. And it's like anything, like I said, it's just genuine relationships, communication, and, and it's a partnership in this problem solving, uh, uh, process of, of trying to make them the best they can be. And, and they have to know that I'm there to, to, literally my only job is to make them the best they can possibly be. And that's, that's really my only concern. Mm. I remember um, in being in Norway with you and uh, sitting and having a coffee, you probably don't remember it, but we were sitting chatting and I remember you sort of talking about, you know, it was late in the season, you were tired. It's, it's a, you know, it's a grind on that schedule and stuff. And you had your little coffee machine and we sat down and had an espresso and, you know, we were talking about hockey and you were sort of talking to me about my experiences in hockey. And I, and I knew that that was something that you sort of wanted to explore. And, and, and I think you were coming kind of to the end of your, your time at Alpine. And tell me how, how did the opportunity in LA sort of um, come about for you? And then, you know, going in with certain expect, expectations, how has that sort of, you know, expectation turned to real life, so to speak? Yeah. Well, Ryan Van Aston, um, who again was part of our group in Calgary and, and ended up, um, uh, taking a job here in LA. Uh, he was here for three years actually when they won two Stanley cups and, and he had a really excellent run here. Uh, so he at one point, um, pursued an opportunity to move back to Calgary. And so, you know, he left LA and at the time, uh, provided my name to management as a, as a possible replacement. So that was kind of my foot in the door. As you know, these jobs aren't posted on the internet or, or in the local newspapers. So it's kind of, you got to know someone to know someone to, to get your name in there. And, um, there's no question. My ambition all along was to be in the NHL. Um, my time in ski racing was, uh, not only ultra formidable, but it was necessary in my personal development. Um, I've met too many people that have worked in one sport only become very tunnel vision and myopic around the world of athlete development. And I will be forever grateful for my experiences in another sport at that level mm-hmm. because of the perspective change and the, um, the, the different skill sets I've learned in terms of how to deal with athletes. So it's just, taken a hockey guy out of hockey and then put me back in and, and just a, a totally different approach to things. But I got, I got my name involved, um, 
I was successful in the interview process and I came in and now here's the thing is they had won the cup. Uh, so they win the championship six months before I get the job or five months before I get the job, actually less, uh, just a few months before I get the job. So I come in, they hire me in training camp. So you've been there before I get hired and I walk in and it's testing day. That's my first day on the job. <laughs> and the gym at the time was under construction. So you've seen my gym. It hasn't even passed building uh, code inspection yet. It's empty. There's wet paint on the walls. And then, and tomorrow is going to be the first day of training camp. I don't know any of the players, you know, other than the big names, I don't have a gym and they've just won. So I figured they've got it all figured out. I just got to come in here, somehow keep the boat afloat. Don't rattle it too much and just, you know, kind of fit in and, and keep everything moving along. And we, we, you know, we should win another cup here in another six months, <laughs> you know, it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> so don't fuck it up. Yeah, don't, don't fuck it up. Just, just come in and we'll, we'll size up the ring. So I think it's still kind of an interesting process. I know Ryan did a phenomenal job here, but if you track the LA Kings over the last six years, since that point, and, and again, since I, I came here, there's been a, uh, obviously a, a slow erosion of, of the, the sort of players that are here, uh, some, you know, it's, there's turnover in pro sports. You went at the top while well, you're, you're on your way to the bottom and we're kind of there now, but I was challenged by management to really build an infrastructure that allowed them to uh, understand their athletes better, you know, and, and make it data driven. And, you know, Ryan was there for three years. He was, he was too busy winning to, to really get, get some of those things in places. And they had, they had crazy turnover in the position. I think it was something like four or five strength coaches in eight years and mm. they just couldn't quite get it settled. So, um, you know, I was tasked with something, but what I learned was, you know, I could, I got the hockey player part. That was always the easy thing. So when you're in a private gym and it's just you and the player, it's just you and the player, mm -hmm. really easy stuff. And, and in a lot of cases they've seeked you out. So they came there looking to work with you. Now, again, I get it flipped where the players are easy. I got put on them kind of like with the ski team example, right? Uh, there was a few guys there when I went to the men's side were kind of like, well, you're not my guy. I didn't hire you. And you can imagine some of those guys that had a little pushback with me, but it's all good. Um, it was learning how to, to work with coaches, how to communicate with coaches, the hierarchy of the, of the, the whole building um, management expectations. <clears throat> it was constant being pulled into a random meeting and all of a sudden you've been in front of people for four hours talking about, you know, vision or, uh, you know, how you're going to handle this situation or what do we got to do here? And it was, it was a little bit overwhelming in the first month or two. And I just, I didn't expect it. Um, mm. and it's, you know, there was no heads up coming in. It's just, that's how it was. We had a really intense general manager. Dean Lombardi was, as intense as they get, you know, he was awesome to work for, pushed me to my limit and I'll forever be grateful for my time with him. Uh, Daryl Sutter was the head coach, old school gruff, uh, didn't say a whole lot, but when he did speak, there was, there was some major gravity to what he was saying and just push you to your limits. And, um, those two guys have, 
influenced me with how I run my program here now. And that'll always be sort of a barometer for expectation. Um, just very, very intense and uh, very influential. But that's that's why we now, and, and I say we, but at the time it was just me, but we've got a nice small staff here now that, that expectations are high and we, we're going to operate at a certain level. Uh, we're going to work hard. I say we might not be smarter than everybody, but we're going to work harder than everybody. And that's kind of that, that DNA in our program is we're going we're gonna to work our ass off and we're going to learn and we're going to figure out ways to do things better. And, and that, I think, comes from my experience with those people when I, when I first got hired. Mm. And you become, you know, a technology adopter and one who's kind of leading that, that charge in, in the new dawn of, of, you know, professional sport. And what are the, what are the goods and bads of, of being sort of at the front end of trying to instigate this, the use of technology to monitor athletes, to understand loading, you know, there, there's, I kind of intuitively understand what it is, but for the listener, what, what are you challenged by? And then what are you also enlightened by, by, by what you've done so far? Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, it's interesting to phrase it as the goods and the bads, because, you know, I think at a surface level, most people would just assume, well, technology is good. It's, it's going to make everything better. And yes, I am an adopter of technology and I believe technology is going to be the way things are going to are going to move forward and they're going to provide insights that weren't previously there but i've learned from my my experiences that <clears throat> there's a limit and everyone has a capacity to uh every athlete has a capacity every coach has a capacity for how much they're willing to engage with different technologies and to sort of comply with technologies and so for one athlete a questionnaire might be all they can really tolerate before they decide they're not engaging anymore. Mm. And so for some athletes, it might be five or six things. Um, what I had to do here was I had to create, and my, my sort of philosophy around the challenge was let's create gold standard direct measures. So let's make sure that we put some technologies in place that are going to create um, very predictable, reliable information and that the athletes can't sort of game. You know, we don't want, these sort of uh, integrative type technologies. And, and I wanted very, very uh, airtight technology. So <clears throat> the good is we get unbelievable information. We get very reliable, very clean data uh, when it's collected correctly and, it, and it's done at the right intervals. The bad is you've got to figure out how to get athletes to comply with it or to participate with it. And this isn't Olympic sport, right? Mm -hmm. So the Olympic sport, I got a group of athletes that their, their livelihood depends on results and I'm there as an ally. They'll do for the most part, whatever I ask them to do. And there's a, there's a trust level come to the, the pro sport side. Well, here's this guy with this tool and it's measuring something and he works for the GM. And if I do that thing, what's the number going to tell him? And is he going to get me in trouble or is this going to affect this? And there's this whole <laughs> ball of yarn of, of narrative around what, what the numbers are going to be. And so the bad is that it's not necessarily bad, but there's a lot of teaching and there's a lot of um, explaining that has to go into what a particular technology does before the athlete agrees to participate because nothing's mandatory right <laughs> we have to we have to earn trust and we have to earn that buy-in and then the player will engage with us and so you know i think i think 
that's sort of the, the, the 10,000 foot view of the good and bad, obviously the bad and we're very diligent in making sure that what we bring in is the right piece of equipment in terms of what, what it's telling us and is it question driven. So we want to ask the question, then fit the technology to the question. I get, I get phone calls all the time. Hey, Pricer, um, we bought force plates and I know you use force plates and you've got great experience with force plates. So what should we do with them? (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Are you filling the blank on any other technology? Hey, we've got this and and, uh, what should we do with it? Or what are you looking at? It's like, it's, it's all backwards. And I, and I, I use the analogy where in, in this seat, it's like a game of jeopardy, right? It's where someone's giving me the answer and then we got to guess the question, you know, <laughs> Hey, this phone call comes in and we've got this new piece of technology and it'll tell you X, Y, and Z. And it's like, wow, I didn't ask about any of that stuff. Why do I, why would I care? And it's really important that we start question first, fit the technology to it, and then determine is it something that fits in our environment? Can we realistically execute it and utilize it? And is the information going to get back to us fast enough that it's going to you know, drive decision-making, whether it's in the daily basis or is it is it a longer-term type profiling piece of equipment? But it really had to fit the, the vision first. And, and so you know, good or bad, there's, there's really nothing good or bad about it. I think it's a little bit more how you select it and apply it. Mm-hmm. I like that answer. That's, that's very cool. I'm going to use that actually as segue to your purpose, so to speak. So you are uh, April 27th, baby, Taurus nine. So your purpose from my lovely little book is to use the power of your magnetism to attract and repel whatever you desire, to learn to say no to unhealthy desires without feeling deprived, using your power to attract with good discrimination. Two souls with but a single thought, two hearts that beat as one, Marvin Lovell. The perfect partners, Venus and Mars, go together like Romeo and Juliet. They fit, they complement, and they create an energy and magnetism few can ignore. People born with this energy have the power to topple countries, unite opposing forces, and get a date on Saturday night. They're the stuff legends are made of. But what they choose is is the challenge. Romeo may have found the love of his life. What good is love without a life? They have power to full desires, and setting limits is not their specialty. It is vital in this dynamic for the Mars energy to have a positive place to express. The Taurus 9 needs to be able to stand up for his rights and demand respect. Highly magnetic Taurus 9 is powerful, charismatic, beautiful, and charming. These people must own their power and their sexuality. It's a gift from the gods, and they don't like their gifts ignored. The Taurus 9 needs to assert himself or herself in any situation. So go for the gold. Ask out the girl you've been ogling in the library and take a step closer to your dream. You have a winning combination, but you can't win until you play the game. That's pretty good. Wow. I won't even go there with that one. That was solid. <laughs> On that well, note, actually, I'm going to ask you what would your what would your wife say? No, you took a long time to 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 sort of, in some sense, find um find the right gal in your life, and then you guys got married, and now you're expecting and stuff. Um, tell me about uh, your partner and what she does for you, and sort of in 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 the work you do. Well, first of all, she's I mean, insanely supportive of what I do. Um, she's really sacrifice so much for me to have you know this career this this current job um just just like a the perfect match for me and she's kind of the opposite you know she's not a she's not into sports 
Um, she's an only child. I'm one of three. Um, we just have these, these very different characters, but maybe it's a little bit like you just read. We, we seem to come together and, and she challenges me in ways, uh, that, you know, I, I think the Taurus side, right. I'm very stubborn. Um, I could be dominating in conversations. Uh, I like to hear my own voice sometimes. Uh, you know, I'm not very, uh, subtle sometimes lack a little bit of compassion, not very sensitive. <laughs> it's a little bit of a bull. <laughs> and then she kind of calls bullshit on it. No pun intended. And, and, forces me to be a little softer to to say I love you a little bit more and to be a little bit more affectionate and to to be more considerate of certain um situations and you know I'm not a religious guy but you know she'll last night she she grabbed my hand and and she's been very heavy-hearted lately with the passing of Kobe Bryant and and the other victims of the helicopter crash and she said we're going to say a prayer and we'll say a prayer together. And, and like I said, those are the little things that offset my character, but she's just unbelievably giving and considerate and, and, uh, and just, just the perfect match, you know? And, and, and like I said, she's, she's been so supportive of what I do and, and just kind of sacrificed a lot of her friends and family and her career that she had back in Toronto and, and given me and us this opportunity to move across the continent and, and live in a new country and a new culture of, of, of LA. LA is a very different place. And, and it was hard for her. She, she had to give up her career. She couldn't work here. She had no friends and, and it was really tough. And, uh, and without her, we wouldn't be sitting here and we wouldn't be doing these things. And, and so just, just the perfect partner. Well, very cool. And I'm going to play off what you just said, um, knowing that you're going to be a dad and, seeing what, you know, you're in the middle of the town where this whole unfortunate thing has come to pass for Kobe um, and losing him, his life and his daughter's life. What does it make you think about when you're going to be a dad now? Like, you know, did you, does it give you pause for thought or, or contemplation? Yeah. And I'm, I can only imagine how it's going to change in a few months, but um, I think like you, you alluded to, I've been very sort of, uh, methodical in, in things in my life, whether it was getting married, uh, I'm having a, my first child at 42, um, career sort of plotted along slowly. I didn't start university till I was 21. I went back to school at 27. So there's, there's all these things in my life that sort of plotted along slowly. And now <clears throat> I'm going to have a child at 42 and, I've been so fortunate in my life to, I mean, I've traveled all over the globe with work. I've seen things that people can only dream of seeing just, just the the most fortunate life to this point uh, for me and my wife. And I think one thing I've said to her time and time again is it's, it's really exciting now to have someone and something in our life that we can give to and sacrifice for, because we, we don't need anything else. If, you know, if it all ended tomorrow, I've done everything, you know, I just feel so fortunate, but, um, what we're excited about is committing ourselves to this child and, and, and trying to be the best parents possible. Obviously that's, that's everybody's goal, but just to raise a good person, you know, someone who's going to come in and be a positive influence in the world. I think the world's a, 
a, a tough place at times. Uh, it's very heavy. And we want someone who one day is just going to brighten the world in some way, however that might look. Um, we have no expectations other than just be a good person. Um, and I think time, as, as we all know, time is very precious. Uh, you know, I've, I've been guilty of being a, a workaholic at times and just over committing to work and sacrificing everything for everybody else. And I think there's, there's coming a time now where I need to pull back and, 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 and draw some lines and make sure that there's, there's a lot of time and energy um, available at the end of the day for, for a young guy and, and to be able to, to, to be a, a good father and, and be a good husband. And um, yeah, that's, that's the, that's the next phase here is, is, is passing it on. Cool. Is that what you're having a boy? Yeah. Awesome. I, I think he's already up to like three and a half pounds. My wife's freaking out. So he's going to have my, my hands and feet. It's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be gnarly. <laughs> Well, I will, um, I will ask you this question, which I haven't asked actually for a little while on my podcast, but you're, you will perish as we all will at some point, but what do you hope people remember you for or how they, how do they remember you? Yeah, well, it's, um, that is a really important question. It's something I think of a, a lot. I think legacy is just something that crosses my mind a lot of, like I said, I don't, I don't think there's an afterlife for me. It's what, what am I going to leave behind? Um, you know, I hope, I hope people uh, remember me as someone who, who obviously was a, uh, an honest person who had a, had integrity, who, uh, hopefully would, would give them the shirt off my back that, that was supportive. It was there for them. Um, uh, but like I said, I think, um, uh, I just hope I impacted the, the people that I, I was around in a positive way. You know, I, I've had athletes come back and this is always the greatest thing. And they talk about something that had nothing to do with training. You know, it was like, mm-hmm. Hey, you know, that was a really fun summer, but you remember that time we had that talk about, you know, you know something else unrelated and that really helped me, you know, and, and those are the little things I think that as a coach, um, like I said, you want them to be the best they can be and you hope that they can excel at their sport. But I think sport's a vehicle for, for so many greater things in life. Um, famous athletes are, are great at sport, but look at Kobe Bryant's impact on the world is not necessarily because of basketball, but because of his, of his impact on people outside of the sport. And this guy transcended basketball sport and, and, and just a, a global ambassador. But, you know, I hope that I can just, just a little nugget of positivity with everyone that I connected with. And and that's just how I was remembered. And like I said, I want to leave behind a a good son that can hopefully be a good guy one day. Awesome. That's a great way to finish. Thanks for taking some time on game day, my friend, and uh, glad it all worked out that we were able to pull it together. Absolutely. Scotty, really appreciate uh, you having me on and look forward to the summer when we're up at the, at the summit there in Montremblant. It's going to be a lot of fun. I think so. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.